0: You're listening to an Ono Media podcast. Good morning, and thanks for joining me for Rise and Crime, your morning caffeine hit all about crime. I'm Mama Jules, and now to a case suggestion from the YouTube channel, And you guys, after researching this case, I can't believe it hasn't received more national attention. And maybe we can help drive interest in this story that crossed multiple states and has one woman still missing with very few signs of a positive outcome. Now let's start back in May of 2019 when Katie Ferguson and Adam Aviles gave birth to their beautiful and healthy baby girl, Harlow Jean. Both mom and dad, separately on their Facebook pages, celebrated with posts about their new baby girl. And as always on social media accounts, the love seems endless and the happiness seems overflowing. But we all know that's just not really ever true. The only thing that is real, is the varying amounts of sadness sprinkled or sometimes in some cases just flat out dumped into the in-betweens of the joyous moments? And for Katie Ferguson, the sadness was usually preceded by drug and alcohol use. It appears she had battled the demons for multiple years. In May of 2020, when her daughter was turning one, Katie posted a selfie with the hashtag soberlicious mama. So those were the good times but the in-betweens seemed to be really ugly. And according to Katie's mom, Mona Hartling, Katie had fallen back into drug use this last summer. Now this prompted an extended visit to her mother's home in Alabama to dig out of the bad in-betweens and hopefully return to the good times. And by this time, Katie had two children with her on-again, off-again boyfriend, Adam. And When I say Alabama and her mother's home, that's just a relative term. She and her mother had moved often when Katie was a child. And in my digging through Facebook posts, I found at least four different hometowns listed for her mother, Mona. But this we know for sure. Katie was in Alabama with her mother and her two children this summer. And according to Mona, she had gotten clean again. And then at some point, Adam joined the crew in Alabama And then in early October, Adam and Katie and the two children headed back across the country to return to Cody, Wyoming, where Adam and Katie have family members. Now, it was somewhere near October 3rd or 4th when the four set out in Adam's 1999 black Dodge Durango. Now, the trip was slow. On October 5th, the Dodge Durango was caught on an Arkansas police camera And notably, there was a bullet hole that could be seen in the passenger side door of the Durango. And when the family left Alabama, there wasn't a hole. Four days later, a Texas DPS patrol camera caught pictures of the Durango. The passenger side door bullet hole was now covered with duct tape in those pictures. And inside the car, the pictures show that Katie is just not visible. The passenger seat appears to be filled with heaps of clothing instead of a passenger. And then on October 11th, at least one week since leaving Alabama, a Colorado State police trooper makes contact with Adam. Now during that encounter, again, Katie is not in the vehicle. Then three more weeks go by and finally Katie is reported missing by her mother Mona. Following up on the lead of Katie Missing, police track down Adam in Cody, Wyoming, where he somehow successfully made it home with the two girls. He tells the police Katie isn't missing at all. He says she just doesn't want any contact with her mother. But that story doesn't match what he apparently had told Katie's family. He had said the reason she wasn't with him anymore is because she had relapsed into drugs again and she had left the family near Little Rock, Arkansas in search of more drugs. And he said she quite simply had failed to return. And as we all know, adults can just go off the radar if they want to. But police accepted the explanation, but they weren't entirely convinced by Adam's retelling of the events. And that leaves me asking one question why didn't adam report her missing we'll just let that one hang there as i finish telling you the story all right two days after mona reported katie missing someone else filed another report except this time it's in regard to an abandoned black dodge durango parked in the oregon basin which is a rural area of park county around five to ten miles outside of cody When Park County Sheriff's deputies checked the registration of the abandoned Durango, it came back to Adam. And strangely, some of the windows in the Durango were covered on the inside by black plastic. Now, deputies were already on alert due to the missing persons report, so they broke a window to the Durango to assure no one was inside the vehicle needing medical attention. And what Sheriff Durrell Stewart found was incredibly disturbing. A police affidavit says, he could smell putrefied blood coming from the vehicle he also noted the front passenger seat was missing and there were multiple used clorox wipes that were found throughout the durango and near the center console sheriff Stewart noticed a glock pistol magazine loaded to capacity and remember a bullet hole was noted in the door in arkansas And police could now confirm while looking at metal deformation on the Durango that the bullet was shot from inside the car, meaning the bullet exited the car door, not entered the car door. As they continued searching the Durango, they found a black plastic bag with part of an interior door casing protruding from the bag. The affidavit notes that a large dried streak of blood was on the molding. And you're not going to believe what happened next. As deputies are searching the car, up walks Adam carrying a gas can. He told authorities that he had run out of gas and he was returning to refill the tank. Well, that wasn't going to happen. Authorities instead towed the Durango back to the Cody Law Enforcement Center and they secured a warrant to continue the search of the vehicle. Then more damning evidence was uncovered, like additional cleaning supplies, more blood-stained items and blood-stained clothing, and three rounds fired from a forty-five caliber weapon. Two of the rounds were inside the front passenger door, and one was in a passenger side panel. Now, the investigation was in full swing at this point. No gun was found in the car, but when investigators spoke with Adam's father, he admitted that he had seen Adam with a large caliber handgun. And authorities also determined that the recovered rounds were similar to ones that were in the magazine that had been found on the center console. By this time, the FBI was also called in to help on the case, and they began interviewing Katie's four-year-old daughter, Harlow. The affidavit states that during the interview, Harlow said her father accidentally hurt her mother. But they just couldn't be sure of the time frame. The incident Harlow was referencing could have happened weeks prior, or maybe it really did happen during the road trip. And then there are the two cadaver dogs. Those two dogs were used to search the Durango. The affidavit says one canine alerted near a tire track where the vehicle was sitting when it was found. The other canine allegedly alerted by the front passenger door of the Durango. So are you guys screaming yet? How have we not heard this case in the mainstream media more? And how has Adam not been arrested? Well, here's the rest of the story. He did turn himself in on a firearms charge. See, Adam has been convicted of a felony heroin possession, which disqualifies him from possessing a firearm. Now, this also means the feds have stepped in. Paige Hammer, she's the Assistant U.S. Attorney for Wyoming, she's charged Adam with one count of being a felon in possession of a firearm, which is actually a pretty hefty charge. This charge is punishable for up to 15 years in prison and $250,000 in fines. Now, Adam is still in police custody, but he's yet to be charged with any violent acts against Katie. And you guys, it actually got uglier for the family last week. It appears Katie's stepmom, Angela, has taken over the care of the two young daughters temporarily. Now, you guys, I'm not 100% certain of this, but all context clues lead to this decision for me. So I'm just hypothesizing, but last week, Angela, that's the stepmom to Katie, Angela sent an audio statement to the Cowboy State Daily that said, any money requested through GoFundMes or other crowdsource funding, she said those funds may not go to where you think they're going to go and that they may not always be helpful in the care of Katie's kids. She said the girls' monetary needs are currently being met and that others should be wary of the crowdsource funding. She said she would just ask for a pause until it is determined where the girls will end up and if they will need to pay for funeral expenses. Okay, so who started the crowdfunding page? Well, it's Katie's brother, Alan. He also sent a message to the Cowboy State Daily that indicated Katie had lived with him and his mother. He said that Angela is just mad because Alan wouldn't relinquish control over the funds. He said every cent is going to the girls and also to the search for Katie. He also said the funds were being used to situate Mona. Remember, that's Katie's mom. So he said the funds were going to situate Mona to care for Katie's daughters. He claimed that the shutting down of the page will only harm the girls. Alan seems to be standing alone with his mother, Mona, because Katie's sister, Nicole, agrees with her stepmother, Angela, She says the funds weren't being used to search for her sister and that the formation of the page made her beyond angry and very sad. Now, it's interesting that the GoFundMe page references the cost of a funeral. Law enforcement has yet to publicly confirm that Katie has been determined to be dead. And the family's relationship with the police has been strained as well. According to Angela's statement to the Cowboy Daily News, she said, The family learned about the blood and bullet hole in the Dodge Durango through the article published in the Cowboy Daily News, not by the police or investigators. She said that it was pretty offensive the way that they put out the information. Then she went on to say it just wasn't right. Now, the family has asked that Katie be remembered. In a Facebook post, her stepmother wrote the following, I just want to humanize Katie. She is just not a report on a missing persons list. She's a friend, a daughter, a sister, a mother, and a niece. She loves her kids more than anything. They are her everything. She kept her kids clean and well cared for. She has a way of making people laugh. Her siblings can attest to her goofiness. She has a great sense of humor, much like her dad. She is a mama's girl for sure. She always had a home with her mom. They look after each other. She's a hard worker. Before kids, she worked two jobs. One job was at the historic hotel, the Irma, and another at Granny's. And she loved rap music and called herself Gangsta Kate. Before taking on the nickname Gangsta Kate, she was called Me Mouse. And family still calls her that. Humanize Katie. Well, in another post, Angela asked for help from the public. But it was in a very specific way. In this post, she wrote, In due time, she will be found. We have a whole team of professionals looking for her, including the FBI. They are trained and qualified. They have the equipment, education, and experience. While family is just wanting to go out and find her, resources are limited, and independent searches would, for one thing, possibly mess up an investigation, and for the second thing would be a waste of resources, and thirdly, resources would be pulled from the kids, Okay, then in the same post, she seems to throw some sort of shade at Adam and maybe others who are not telling everything they know. So, this is what she wrote then We have been told things that are untrue, and we are now talking to the detective for facts. It's awful that we would be told lies and twisted stories to pull emotional energy from a family that is already suffering. Katie's story needs to be told after we get the facts. Put out any rumors on the rumor mill. If anyone benefits from Katie's story, it should be her kids. Then she went on to say, Exploitation of her story or funds made in her name is just wrong. Family needs love, support, and grace. It doesn't take much to send a message checking in. Family needs a shoulder to cry on, light in their darkest moments, and a listening ear. Family will grieve differently. Please don't judge. Just keep Katie human, not just a statistic or a fact. She is a real human being. She is a daughter, a sister, an aunt, a cousin, and most importantly, a mother. Now I'm going to obviously be watching this story. And if you're listening and you know anything about a 1999 Dodge Durango making a cross country trip in October with two little girls inside, please contact the Park County Sheriff's Office at 307-527-8700. And should we just keep the theme going? Another missing mother. Except this time, it's Texas to California instead of Alabama to Wyoming. 36-year-old Danielle Becker Friedland is wife to Jordan Friedland and mother to two young boys ages 2 and 5 years old. Now, Jordan, her husband says that Danielle, or Danny as most people call her, he said she was experiencing, and this is according to Jordan in his words, an unexpected but ongoing mental health crisis that has lasted for several months. Now, multiple sources say she has been diagnosed with depression, mood disorder, psychosis, anxiety, and obsessive compulsive personality disorder. Danny had bravely sought treatment at the Menninger Clinic in Houston, Texas. Now, this was a serious step for the dedicated mother. She and her family reside in the California Bay Area, and so the six week inpatient care was truly a sacrifice and a commitment to reestablishing her health. Well, on the day before Thanksgiving, Danny was released from the Menninger Clinic, deemed well enough to continue her care in her home state. She traveled to the George Bush Intercontinental Airport in Houston that night. She checked her luggage, but she never boarded her flight back to California. When police began investigating the missing persons case, they soon found out that Danny left her phone at the airport when she hailed a taxi and vanished into the night in Houston. Now it does appear she took $160 in cash and a debit card. And this is just me guessing here, but $160 sounds like an amount you would take out of an ATM. And so my own thoughts are leading me to believe that investigators have that knowledge of her using that debit card to withdraw that money. Now, Jordan told KHOU out of Houston that their two boys miss their mother more than anything in the world. He called her the most amazing mom and said the world is a better place with her in it, contributing as a mom, a friend, and a community member. Now, Danny and Jordan's friend, Will True, told the Jewish Herald Voice that Danny's progress at the inpatient clinic had been remarkable and that the combination of therapy and medication had helped Danny be ready to return home. He said Danny had contacted her husband on Wednesday morning from the clinic, And all seemed well. She then took an Uber to the airport and checked her bags, but her ticket to San Francisco was never used. Now, True also confirmed that Jordan had reached out to all Houston shelters and hospitals, and he's also granted interviews to local media just in hopes to spread awareness of Danny being missing. Now, when the Jewish Herald Voice reached out to the Menninger Clinic, they responded with a brief sentence about Danny being a missing person. They said the following We are aware of the news coverage about this unfortunate event. We are deeply saddened by this situation, and our hearts go out to the family. We all hope for her safe return. Now, I would suggest not getting too bothered by this neutral response. They really can't share her healthcare history, and I think this is probably the best they are going to give the public. Okay, airport cameras show Danny dressed in a navy-colored Cotopaxi thin puffy jacket with orange horizontal stripes across the chest. She's also carrying a black Patagonia backpack and wearing dark blue joggers. She is five feet two inches tall with dark brown hair that has a slight touch of auburn to it and she also has brown eyes. She weighs about 100 pounds. Friends and family have flown into the Houston area to continue searching for Danny. Will True is asking anyone who might have a tip or a sighting to email him at whtrue at gmail.com. Tips can also be called into the Houston Police Department at 832-394-1840. All right, let's head to Oregon and give you guys an update on a potential serial killer that seemed to be targeting women involved in substance abuse in the greater Portland area. And if you want to hear details about the victims of this potential serial killer, you can hop on back to the June 8th episode of Rise and Crime. You know I think it's so important to remember them. But on this episode, I'm just going to give you the quick recap and update that is going to leave most of you unsatisfied with where this case has gone. All right, in the months of February through May of this year, the bodies of six women were found within 100 miles of each other in and around Portland. Now, the women's deaths were slightly different, which led police from various agencies and jurisdictions to dismiss social media rumors that a potential serial killer was stalking the drug scene in the Portland area. They even kind of scolded true crime followers, warning the public against making assumptions about the deaths. But then Portland police put out a second statement acknowledging the links between the deaths of Bridget Webster, Charity Perry, Ashley Reel, and Kristen Smith. Now, one victim was conspicuously left off the list. 32-year-old Joanna Speaks disappeared in March, and then her body was found in early April, about 20 miles north of Portland. She had been dumped next to an abandoned barn. And police at that time were very open about the idea that she was not killed in that location, but she was instead moved there following her murder. Well, Portland Police informed the public this week that they believe Joanna was murdered within their jurisdiction and that they will be taking over her case. Her family responded to the information by thanking the Portland Police Bureau for taking over the case and giving the family the hope that with PPB now handling the case, that more opportunities for witness testimony and evidence tracking will help in finding Joanna's killer. So... When this update came out this week, I raised an eyebrow because in a July 20th episode of Rise in Crime, I again covered this case and reported that Jesse Calhoun had been reincarcerated by the Oregon governor and that law enforcement believed he was the killer of the four women. So why doesn't PPB believe Jesse is the killer of Joanna? So I did some digging and here's what I've learned. Jesse has never been charged with the other four murders, even though police strongly indicated that he was their prime suspect. So here's how that all went down in July. 38-year-old Jesse Calhoun had been led out of prison early by Governor Kate Brown because wildfires were raging in the West and the governor granted clemency to several prisoners in return for their help in fighting the fires. Well, Jesse had been in prison for multiple clashes with law enforcement that included unauthorized use of a vehicle, assaulting a public safety officer, and first degree burglary. But in July, after being let out early from prison two years earlier, Jesse was suddenly rearrested because the new governor revoked his clemency. He was the only prisoner out of about 1,000 who had received clemency to be placed back in prison. It was then leaked through several media outlets that Jesse had been re-imprisoned because investigators believed he was the potential killer of the four women, and they were placing him back behind bars while they established a firmer case against Jesse. Well, guess what? Charges still have not been filed against Jesse, and he has been keeping in touch with KGWTV in Portland all while he's been behind bars. He told the outlet that he has not been charged with killings for a reason. He said he isn't the killer and that he feels like law enforcement is just trying to come up with whatever they can because he is an easy target. In his words, a sitting duck in prison. When asked by KGW-TV about Jesse being the suspect, Diana Allen, that's the mother of Charity Perry, She said that the public is premature in thinking that the person responsible for the murders is behind bars. So that means a potential serial killer could still be roaming free in the greater Portland area, at least according to the mother of the victim. So it might be Jesse, and it might not be Jesse. We actually probably are further away from knowing the truth than when I brought you the update in July. Now, the earliest that Jesse can be released from prison is June of next year, so time is on investigators' and prosecutors' sides. The outlet also reported that a source close to the investigation said police are still waiting for results from forensic testing and that no formal decision has been made on which cases will be taken to the grand jury or even where the cases might potentially be prosecuted since they span several jurisdictions. Okay. Remember, I said you might be dissatisfied with this update, and you probably are. I'll just keep watching and let you know if Jesse is identified by law enforcement as the suspected killer. And then in the meantime, women, please be extra cautious in the Portland area. And let's finish with this quick story out of the happiest place on earth. On Sunday, a Disneyland Park guest in California was arrested after being escorted off the theme park properties by local authorities. So what did he do? Oh, he just removed all his clothes and wandered through the animatronics on the It's a Small World ride. You know that ride where lots of young children are slowly boating through the various cultures found around the world? And keep in mind... This is the busy Thanksgiving weekend. I'm sure the ride was packed with kids and families. According to Deadline, the nearly naked park guest got off the ride while it was in motion and wandered in only his underwear through the animatronics. And I think you can guess what happened next. Riders with cell phones started filming the streaker as he wandered through the flamingo characters and the dancing Indian princesses. He can be seen touching the snake charmer on the flying carpet before walking out of sight when he enters the Indian Palace. And then in one of the viral social media videos, you can hear another guest tell the streaker to please stop and to sit down. Then in another video, a guest is heard expressing worry that he might damage the singing props. Now the ride was temporarily shut down for about an hour before reopening for park guests. And no one was physically harmed during the commotion, but the incident probably made for some interesting explanations to the children on the ride. The 26-year-old man was arrested for indecent exposure and also for being under the influence of a controlled substance. And if you're now singing the It's a Small World song in your head, I'm really sorry. Well, that's your Thursday episode of Rise and Crime. Just a reminder, Rise in Crime is available ad-free on Apple subscriptions and Patreon, and please make sure you hit that download or subscribe button. Join me again on Monday for more morning crime news. I'm Mama Jules, and keep safe out there. Temple University is ranked among the top 50 public universities in the U.S. Through hands-on learning opportunities and world-class faculty, Temple students are prepared to soar in their careers.